tonight on Unsolved Mysteries, General Wayne in Haunting, Palo Alto Carjacking, Son of Sam Part 2, and Mississippi Millionaire's Missing Wife. Hi, I'm your co-host, Crystal. And I'm your co-host, Robert. And this is Reenacted, an Unsolved Mysteries podcast. Uh, Tonight, we have a pre-Halloween episode. Um, But it's it's spooky. (laughs) It's spooky. Well, I'm going to... I'm going to jump right into it. Um, the first segment we get in, introduced to by Robert Stack, who I believe uh, is once again in front of the Queen Mary. Another <laughs> fucking goddamn Queen Mary. <laughs> well, anytime it's there's a spooky serious. thing now, they probably kept him out there for like an hour and they just recorded all the intros of all like <laughs> ghost stories uh, in front of the Queen Mary. There's And there's obviously some like PA off camera that's like shooting Adam with a fog machine because... <laughs> It's not, I it don't look like that, so. Okay. All right, so um, we open with the General Wayne Inn in Marion, Pennsylvania. Uh, apparently Poe Edgar Allen stayed there, and he wrote The Raven while he was staying there. And then he stayed there nevermore. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I can't help but notice that you skipped over mentioning that all of our founding fathers who stayed there. I just Which is fine. I didn't find that very interesting. I feel like it's one of those things like how we have out West, like Mark Twain stayed here. It's like, who gives a shit? You know? Gotcha. Um, Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> I also, I just didn't remember that at all, but I, cause I was so focused on my Poe pun. Um, anyway. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so, so the owner, the general manager that works there is talking about all kinds of sort of spooky happenings. Like he's finding towels thrown all over the kitchen. Hi. Um, does this seem weird? There's been sightings. Uh, there's been some adding machine problems. They don't get into detail of that. But the final straw, goddammit, when they called Unsolved Mysteries is when there was a funny Cadillac in the parking lot that started on its own. And that, the way they reenact this, they have uh, anything that could turn on in a car does all at the same time. With <laughs> windshield wipers. Yeah, windshield wipers. The headlights go on. The horn is honking. Uh, the radio comes on, the engine starts, like everything comes on all at once. Uh, apparently no one was in the car, though. It just kind of started. Uh, so as they keep referring to it as the entity, uh, one of the pranks the entity likes to play is to go down the bar the bar line on a busy night, and it'll blow on the back of women's necks, and there's a really fantastic reenactment of... Uh, uh, where there's a, you know, a line of women sitting at the bar with men standing behind them, and then all of them, one by one, getting totally offended. I think one of the, one of the men gets slapped. I don't yeah, quite uh, remember. On, honestly, yeah, no, I, I love this segment, but what really amused me was the way that um, Mr. Johnson, the owner, it was, just, you know, they, 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 they depict him just watching with this amused look on his face as this happens. Um, 
you know, I mean, like he he fully knows that dozens of men are about to be cu- accused of sexual harassment yeah. and that they're innocent. Well, it, and it's also that's it to have someone blowing on the back of your neck when you're not expecting it. It's just a super creepy feeling anyway. Um, so we get an interview with Dave Rogers, who's the maitre d', um, and he gives us uh, the intro to one of, I think is one of the most interesting visuals to ever, that will ever be on Unsolved Mysteries. Um, he's talking about how he's in, I think he's in uh, the walk-in freezer, um, mm. or he's somewhere in the back of the kitchen, and uh, he turns around to leave the room, and out of the corner of his eye, he notices a severed head staring at him on, on top of a chest of drawers. And so he comes running out of the kitchen screaming, I saw a head, which I, in con- out of context would make no sense to anybody heard that. But um, we get, again, we get the very slow pull-in shot of, it's sort of a like a holograph effect. Yeah, that's, that's what it looked like to me. Like, you know, some sort of hologram type uh, head uh, that they just swipe over. Or whatever the technical term it, term is. Yeah, um, I mean it's 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 spooky. I think, or it's cheesy. I can't decide. It's it's a bit of both, a bit of both. Because my initial thought was like, and I don't think it's necessarily uh, the the effect itself, but the, the reenactment was just kind of strange because they didn't the the way they filmed it. You would think that maybe this um, the the this guy portraying Dave, Dave Rogers, unless it was Dave Rogers himself, like he he barely even looks over at where the severed head is, and then he just sort of nonchalantly walks out. Um, <clears throat> not quite the the you know, uh, I mean, so it really left me kind of wondering, like, did he did he actually see the ghost head? I can't tell. Um, but no, but the effect itself is fine for the era, um, and yes, definitely a mix of cheese and mm. spooky. They spend a lot of time lingering on it too. Yeah, they yeah. Sl- do the slow pull in and linger. Uh, it's the creeper shot. Um, <laughs> all right, so then we get to Alice Glorman, who heard her name being called while she was in the dining room. Uh, and so she went around the corner into the hallway to find a man who was, uh, apparently in a revolutionary war uniform. That's what I, I, I was kind of a bit perplexed about when I was seeing it because I did not see, to me, this did not look like a uniform. I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, this person was holding a musket, so I'm assuming. Yeah, it was, it was like 18th century casual dress is what it looked yeah, like. Yeah, so this was probably, maybe it was like a militiaman or, mm. or a midman or something. Mm, very possibly. Uh, yeah. So at this point, we get a, we get some local history, which is this specter or the entity had been seen before 100 years ago. Uh at the very same inn, wearing the very same thing. So in 1848, during an election, I guess that was the inn was the local polling place. Uh, witnesses described seeing a soldier um, as well. So 1848 would have been, you know, 60 some odd years after the end of the Revolutionary War. Yeah. Well, what I found actually interesting was they mentioned that the witnesses were women. 
like there was a woman supervising the the election site and then like a woman mm. working went down to get ballots how interesting that they you know they were working the election site but they couldn't vote <laughs> i mean isn't that like su- such a strange strange notion I guess not. Well, I mean, uh, what what was that letter that Abigail Adams wrote to John Adams? The from was it Seneca Falls? When her and her uh, salon of women ar- yeah, uh, argued that this is when he was uh, when they were drafting the Articles of Confederation. I think mm-hmm. that should they not get a say in the new country that was being formed? So, I mean, I uh, guess they. But they got in where they could. <laughs> true, true. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, political science and history. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, so, Michael and my make McKaylin Meyer, help me out. I, here. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that like your you know uncertainty saying that name matches the uns clear uncertainty of how I wrote it mm-hmm. with spaces in between letters. Yep. <laughs> but uh, a parapsychologist. So we'll we'll say Ms. Mayer. Uh, she's a, she's more than a par- parapsychologist. She's a paranormal investigator, but she also introduces herself as a skeptic. Um, and she uses statistical evidence to compare to witness and psychic experiences. Uh, so basically what they describe her doing as without uh, without talking to each other she will plot within the the general wane in she'll make a little x where someone had an experience right and then after interviewing so many people and then sending in a psychic she has you know we'll call them uh distribution points of these sightings and overlays them to see if there's any correlation or significance so um so they call in a psychic so there, there's your skeptic Right, she's using some science. Uh, then they call in a psychic. Um, the psychic uh, instinctively goes down into the basement and um, describes there's a presence of a Revolutionary War soldier who's very frightened down there. How would you feel about making change? We fear change. Um, possibly was in hiding. Possibly died down there. Um... So we we cut to another scene uh, where we have I think it's the general manager again the the main guy telling us all the stories uh, where everyone is gathered in the general Wayne in bar so you know folks that work there and and guests they are all watching the television because the local news had was going to air a story about the hauntings in the general Wayne Inn so it's sort of like a meta. Uh, situation to the yeah, story that I, I'm telling. I, I didn't pay close close enough attention at first, so like the first time watching this for this uh, show, I I thought like that they were just they were just putting on that General Wayne segment just to like have something that they could show on the TV to demonstrate it. But then I rewatched it and I was like, oh, it was they were actually all gathered there to watch a segment about the General Wayne, Wayne Inn while in the General Wayne Inn. Uh, yes. and this is a reenactment of that of, <laughs> of that viewing of the segment of them watching <laughs> a show about 
Uh, anyway, okay, don't think yeah. don't, it, it, it goes it goes pretty deep. That's what I'm saying. So yeah. while in the reenactment, and while the patrons are watching the segment on the local TV news, the TV starts to go wonky. So the picture in the screen starts to slowly turn sideways. Um, okay. I think that's that was really the only thing that happened there. Uh, so I'm wondering though. Because we actually, spoiler, don't get an update for the story. If when they sat down to watch this segment of Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> did, 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 did uh, instead of like rotating, the there was actually a swipe. And the um, uh, the general way in was pushed off. Like the Unsolved Mysteries episode was pushed off by the previous general way in segment that they had been watching. Or not. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it was... It was 30 years... I mean, like, what would happen if now they were listening to this podcast that the general weigh in? Well, we're talking you know, about a show that was reenacting a show. Show in, that was a... Uh, where they're showing a, a show on TV and... I, you know what I think would probably happen is it would probably open a portal to hell. So the general weigh in, please turn off this podcast immediately if you're well, you there and listening. You don't actually have to worry about that, Crystal, because I did um, about 67 or so seconds worth of our research. Oh, yes. The general weigh in is no longer an in. Oh, what is it now? It's actually a synagogue and daycare for a Hasidic Orthodox uh uh, congregation. That is not what I thought was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, um, well, the one thing that we can be pretty sure of is that under no circumstances will this podcast be played at the General Wayne End. So we are all safe from some sort of, um, you know, total, temporal, dimensional conversion paradox real wrath of god type stuff exactly. fire and brimstone coming down from the skies rivers and seas boiling 40 years of darkness earthquakes volcanoes the dead rising from the grave human sacrifice dogs and cats living together mass hysteria the explosion wait are you telling me this is an anti-semitic podcast no 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 i i'm just saying that anyone with a clear moral compass and Ah, uh, I understand. Human yes. de decency. I didn't. I didn't. I was. I got afraid for a second that somehow we had created an anti-Semitic <laughs> podcast when we didn't mean to do that. So can yeah. we? Let's get back to the segment. Yes. So, yes. Um, so we're back to the the paranormal investigator, the statistician, and she says after you know crunching some numbers that would be too complicated for the common man to understand. She says the analysis indicates that something is worth investigating. <laughs> um and then and then we we close it with uh i think it's either the general manager or the former wait staff saying that they don't believe in ghosts but they know that that they are here that sounds yeah that uh, that has that that's a nice illogical um thing to to end that segment with it was actually i believe it was the owner uh barton johnson mm-hmm 
who is also the president of the local historical society. Hmm. Which, I mean, to me, that's kind of like, I kind of feel like that's maybe a little bit of an indicator that maybe all this ghost stuff, maybe he did the research, found out some accounts of the ghost stuff, and has just used it to try to, like, bring business to the general Wayne in. I'm not, I'm not saying that's for sure what he did, but it, it kind of... It just struck me as a possibility. Well, just like the Queen Mary, it kind of seems like a like a puff piece to generate some business. Yeah, like we've had two only two ghost segments so far, and to me, they've both been like you said, they're puff pieces. We haven't gotten any of the real hardcore, scary stuff. I mean, this this was a very innocuous segment. Uh, I'm sure if I watched it as a kid, I would not have been scared because it's just you know, like he's like, yeah, the ghosts they just want to have fun, so they're playing some pranks. Um, so well, how many stacks would you give this reenactment? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give it... I have three three stars written at the bottom of my notes. And during the recording of this entire bit, I've been contemplating making it three and a half, but uh, after that last diatribe I went through, I'll just keep it at three. Um, I'm going to give it because it is such a thinly veiled uh, commercial for the General Wayne Inn. <laughs> uh, but the, the effect with the head on the dresser definitely would have scared me as a kid. It spooks me as an adult. So for that reason, I'm, I'm going to give it two and a half. Uh, we'll move on to our next segment. Which is a wanted. Wanted. Dead over alive. I was going to cut in that music, but we do not have the money for that, so. Uh, yeah, I I, well, I, I don't even know what, what song that it's, is. It's either Bon Jovi or Guns N' Roses. I don't remember. God. Um, we can well, move I, on from this. Yeah, yeah. I just I'm thought so- that would be like a fun drop every time we had a no, wanted no, segment. It, 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 yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, I mean, it's not your fault that like I didn't own the stereo until I was seventeen. Um, anyway, so our next story takes us to February 29, nineteen eighty eight, in Palo Alto, California, and this is uh this is a a straight out wanted segment. Um, it concerns a woman named Gretchen Buford, Buford. Um, who was mm-hmm. uh, a woman who at the age of 41 went to law school. Like after she was done raising the family or whatever, she, she went to law school, became a lawyer. And for what seems to be entirely altruistic reasons, she wanted to like represent uh, people who may not be getting proper legal representation. So, you know, th- th- this is already like a very seems like she seems like a she seemed like she was a very incredible woman um very admirable uh but unfortunately i guess um she was a little too trusting so when she got off work uh on february 29th she went to an atm to deposit some money and apparently she left her door the doors to her car unlocked which I don't know about you, Crystal, but I lock my door literally anytime I get out of my car. Like, I 
anywhere yeah, I no, go. No, I, uh, s- similarly, I do I mean, as well. I mean, granted, you live in L.A., I live in Dayton, Nevada, so, you know, there's... Shh, they'll find us. <laughs> Sorry. Unfortunately, someone who was either stalking the ATM or stalking Gretchen slipped into her car while she was making the deposit and held her um, held her captive in an attempt to get money from more ATM sites. Can I can I drop in a safety tip right right now for anyone Please who do. might be listening? Um, this is another one of my totally real fears is starting up my car driving somewhere and then discovering someone's in my backseat uh so here's a pro tip it turns out the man that was like chasing you around and flashing his lights was trying to help you yep (laughs) but for real because this is a real story that we're talking about that happened to a real woman um before you start your car, which usually in newer cars um, causes the doors to lock. Mm-hmm. Uh, so presumably you don't get like hijacked at a stoplight. Um, it also locks you in the car. So before <laughs> you start your car, take a look in your mirror, turn around, look in your back seat, make sure the coast is clear, then start it up. You've been listening to Robert and Crystal's Safety First, a guide to survival in the 21st century. Um, actually, I don't have to worry about that because my back seats are usually so crammed full of Civil War stuff. That is that- another safety tip. Put enough shit in your back seat <laughs> that no one could possibly be back there. Yeah. Uh, throw Scatter around a lot of like fast food wrappers and stuff. Yes. So not only do they can they not fit but when they're looking for like stuff to steal out of cars they'll just assume that like you're some sort of slob with a lot of garbage in their car and they'll move on to the next one so unfortunately gretchen... oh gretchen i'm sorry <laughs> yeah. yeah gretchen did not follow our advice no unfortunately. yeah and that's like what we only we don't have any solid information on what was happening in that car just conjecture which what I noticed was like the carjacker started out in the back seat, but I guess he must have like pushed himself forward into the front passenger seat or got out real quickly and got into another. I don't know, but he forces her to drive Gretchen to drive around. <clears throat> They're going to hit ATMs to get money. Um, and what, probably one of the more interesting aspects for the reenactment for me was that the carjacker car, was demanding that uh, she take him to, quote, one of those money machines, end quote. Which, like, the way he said it led me to think that they're trying to make it so that the carjacker seemed to be someone who didn't even know what an ATM is called. He's just, like, gone through life seeing people go up to, like, a box-type contraption and get money out of it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I can, I can, I can see that they are trying to paint him as as sort of not very educated. Yeah, or at least not and very I experienced. Like, and I like how Gretchen, like they don't, they don't really portray like the actress portraying her. Like I don't really get the sense of someone who is like legitimately scared. Like because what she's saying, she's being all like tusk tusk, you know, like. You could do a lot of time for this. And she's saying it like almost out of sincere concern. Like, you know, look, dude, you 
don't want to be doing this because this is going to be a lot of trouble. Um, well, and I th- and all of this has to be conjecture though because we don't actually know what happened in the car. Right, right, exactly. Uh, what we do know is about what twenty minutes later they they go up to another ATM. Um, the con- the conjecture is that she may have deliberately flubbed up the transaction because she she entered a, a, for an amount too much, so the machine aborted the transaction. Uh, some witnesses pull up behind them, see her sort of struggle, open the car door, and him close the car door up. And then she does what I'm surprised more people who aren't like carjacked or, or can, you know kidnapped in this sort of situation do, which is she proceeds to drive the car full blast and <laughs> crash into, <laughs> deliberately crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this results two witnesses run up. They say they get a good look at the kidnapper, which is usually something we should be wary of based off our previous experiences with uh, eyewitness testimony on the show. <laughs> um, but, uh, like, you know, she, she gets out of the car saying, he stabbed me, he stabbed me. And she says it with the same sort of urgency as the woman uh, in those iPhone and can't get up uh, commercials. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets out of the car and when I saw him get out of the car, I immediately, and I, I can't help but imagine Crystal that you are probably not as well viewed with the Friday, the 13th films as I am. You would be correct. Yes. Um, but well, I mean, I, I mean, I, no, that was nightmare on Elm street. Please continue. Yes, yes. Well, um, for those of our listeners, such as they are, that have seen and watched those films, if you've seen uh, Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, um, please, go on, <laughs> please, go on, please go on Twitter and uh, let me know if you concur that the carjacker... Particularly because of the type of jacket he's wearing with the white and uh, blue, bears a resemblance to the character of Julius from uh, Nightmare on Elm uh, from uh, from Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight. Uh, Jason takes Manhattan. They they are wearing like it's not the same jacket, but it's the same sort of style. It is so similar. Um. Anyway, so he runs off. Um, they, the witnesses, they go to the aid of Gretchen, but unfortunately, after having been stabbed by uh, what it was apparently a blade with an, uh, a knife with an eight-inch blade. Oh my god! Yeah, um, I, I have that somewhere here in my notes. Um, she passes away, and so the, all they have left are. Well, actually, it's a nine-inch blade. Um, they, the police find the blade. They find a paisley baseball hat in the back seat. And we get a picture we, of the hat. Yeah, in the seat as well from the police. Yeah. Uh, how would you describe that color decoration look? I mean, it, um, it's kind of, it kind of like the hat looks like Mardi Gras exploded on it. Yeah, that that I'd say that's a, a pretty accurate, pretty accurate description. It's a weird um, hat. It's definitely unusual. 
Well, yeah, in so much that apparently there were only two stores that stocked that item. Um, but that didn't lead anywhere. And apparently this segment didn't do anything to actually help catch the killer because um, we, we do get an update. Tyrone Homel was already in prison by the time they figured out who it was. Um, So they just tacked on a second life term to him. Um, I guess justice was done. Uh, Yeah. It's not not terribly satisfying. Yeah, this this, this was not... uh, This was definitely not... In fact, this was... This seemed like a really short segment. It was just like boom, boom, boom. Gretchen gets kidnapped, ATMs, uh, car crash. Uh, can you find the guy? And we found him. I give it two stacks and a hockey mask for that. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna give it. Uh, I'm gonna give it two stacks and an unusual paisley hat. wow that paisley hat made an impression on you apparently it was a weird hat man we're moving on to what i'm sure everyone has been waited with breath what is it robbie son of sam Part two. Oh and boy. This is by far, I, I hope you agree with me, the more bullshitty of the two segments. It's, it's probably why I dozed off. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, they do a little recap. I think, I, I, I think what happened was I, I dozed off. Uh, something particularly egregious woke me up. I said half asleep. What is this bullshit? And then I fell back asleep. Oh, I uh, I can believe that because the, the the number of bullshit uh, elements this are legion. Uh, we get a we start out with a little recap. Um, you know, they discuss what happened in the previous segment. Uh, so, if you haven't watched uh, listened to this episode, uh, the previous episode of our podcast, please do. But basically, all you need to know is Keith Hernandez saw a yellow Volkswagen or something. Um, and then we catch up with, uh, more, more up-to-date information about the son of Sam. I'm not sure if they covered this in the previous segment, but like one of the letters sent to a newspaper columnist made reference to 22 disciples of hell, a wicked King, King Wicker and John Wheaties suffocator of girls. Um, and then it's signed, you know, Son of Sam, and it has what Unsolved Mysteries <laughs> insists is a satanic symbol. But really, to me, this looks more like the symbol for the serial serial killer formerly known as the Son of Sam. <laughs> Maury Terry, our uh, guy, right? He was writing a book about this, right? Uh, he did write Last, a book about this. Yeah, yeah, he wrote a book about this. Um, he's back again. Insisting that Berkowitz was a member of a satanic cult. Uh, his initial thing to to justify this is that uh, Berkowitz lived very near a Wicker Street. And on the street lived a guy named John Carr that Berkowitz knew. John Carr was the son of Sam Carr. 
and he was nicknamed Wheaties, which I will concede is is you know quite a few coincidences um, for the connected to that letter. Um, but anyway, John Carr was a guy who either came from or had lived in Minot, North Dakota. Uh, though they say that he frequently commuted to New York. I'm not sure if commuted is, like, the right term, because don't you just, like, commute from a town right next to a city? This this guy's commuting from the Midwest to New York City. But. Yeah, I'm... No, that's a, that's a strange... Uh, not, uh, again, every... They're just saying things. <laughs> they're just saying a random string of sentences... Uh, and expecting us to draw a conclusion that somehow they're all connected. That That's actually a very good... That that comes very close to how I was thinking of this, because this is like... They're taking four or five disparate events or mm-hmm. thing, circumstances and just sort of like trying to weave them together. Like, we, we interview, what, like three... Three law enforcement, different law enforcement people who are discussing very specific things, but they just sort of lump them together to try to create a, a consistent narrative. Um, like uh, uh, one guy, Terry Gardner, who was, I don't know, uh, ex lieutenant in whichever PD force. I mean, he describes this John Carr as, uh, you know, a drug addict with a lot of uh, friends involved in criminal activity. Um, Apparently, John Carr told his friends in North Dakota that he had a friend back in New York who he called Berkey, which is is such a ridiculous name to give to a serial killer. Um, Carr apparently committed suicide, what, two months after the... Or, or several months after uh, Berkowitz was arrested. Uh, apparently, he sat on the edge of his bed, put a gun in his mouth, and pulled the trigger. Uh, Gardner says that while the girlfriend confirmed this, uh, you know, that he committed suicide uh, that night, the next day she changed her story, said that Carr uh, didn't commit suicide, that he was on the run from the law, uh that he was involved in the Son of Sam shootings and that he was afraid for his life. Um, and so we get information that Carr was involved with a satanic cult. Uh, they were involved with blood drinking, urine drinking, animal sacrifice, you know, the, the, the usual go-tos. Um, <clears throat> which... Uh, you know, and I think probably far more substantive is just that that the Son of Sam symbol was on Carr's North Dakota phone book. To me, that was like one of the less bullshitty things in this episode. Hmm. You know, I mean, that do you think? Because, it, do you think it was possible though? Because I'm assuming they're still giving credit of writing the letters to Berkowitz, right? They're not saying someone else wrote those letters, are they? Uh, I don't remember them specifying necessarily that the letters were written by the cult. So uh, maybe they're still saying Berkowitz wrote them, yeah. So, I mean, do you think it's possible that Berkowitz, who who clearly had some connection to Carr, 
was over at his house and just saw that on the phone book and was intrigued by the doodle and oh man you know i i had been thinking the opposite that car had seen that symbol and thought like hey that's cool and drew it on his phone book but now that you mention it the, your your premise actually makes a lot more sense well yeah. I'm, I'll, I'll float my theory about what i think's going on here if i mean do you have any more detail that there's a few other things that the segment goes through so I, i'll i'll stop interrupting yeah um you know it's, it's just like uh it's, it's a series of bullshit various degrees of bullshittery like apparently in north, north dakota there was a guy named phil falcon who f caught car and a companion doing some sort of alleged animal sacrifice in his house Gross. Uh, and, yeah um and you know this is as awesomely bad as we would want out of something from the 80s Basically, he walks in and there's a pentagram on his kitchen floor with candles and what to me looks like about a 12-pound Thanksgiving turkey. <laughs> uh, um, Falcon is visibly upset, but he, you know, he's obviously one of those guys who he doesn't get very animated, but you get the feeling he's going to kick your ass. Um, it turns out that John Carr's brother michael carr introduced berkowitz into the alleged satanic cult he took him to a floating coven party that sounds dope yeah well you know i when i first heard that term i was thinking like you know once again i was thinking about those girls from the craft uh doing light as a better uh, feather stiff as a bed board, board. <laughs> yeah and then the, you know this is and then this leads to the most to me the height of bullshit in this segment which is when uh mr terry says that they symbolically put the 44 into berkowitz's hand i mean and he, and he specifies not literally symbolically what I, does that mean I was hoping you could give me an answer because I like to me to me this I mean obviously he's trying to like say that they recruited him into their murder scheme uh, and but like I mean you know he's so adamant that they symbolically put it in his hand so did they like they like conjure up an invisible 44 and I don't know. Um, yeah. So after, after the, uh, the, they're done at the friendship party, uh, floating coven <laughs> party. Um, Michael Is it floating coven. Like when you're out of town and you're, you can't be with your regular coven cause you're on a work trip. So you just go to like a floating coven. Is, is floating like a term used for stuff like that? I don't... Well, I'm just like you're... I mean, you know, I, that they're makes, taking like... They'll take like makes, a... Uh, you know, if you're a visitor. Yeah, you know, that makes... That actually makes a lot of sense to me. That's probably... That's probably more accurate than what I was picturing, which, it, you know, was basically these guys participating in light as a feather, stiff as a board. <laughs> And then they put, and then they did seven minutes in heaven in the closet. Yeah. After that, with each other. 
Totally. <laughs> Spin the bottle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, unfortunately, uh, Michael Carr was killed in a car crash. Uh, this was so, about two years. So both Carr brothers are now deceased at this point both, in the story. Both are deceased. Um, Isn't that years- convenient? <laughs> yes. Uh, this is two years after Berkowitz was arrested. And apparently in two be- depositions, Berkowitz gave uh, people who are inclined to believe bullshit enough uh, enough ammunition to believe some pretty ridiculous stuff. Because apparently... They asked him. They asked asked him if he knew Carr, and he said yes, which, uh, as far as we know, is actually true. Then he asked uh, asked uh, then they asked the uh, Berkowitz if the cars were part of a satanic cult, to which he also said yes. Mm-hmm. Then he asked them if the brothers were killed to silence them, and he also said yes to this. And this is beginning to make me wonder. Like, could they have just asked Berkowitz any question, and he would have just said yes to it? Like, were you involved with the assassination of John F. Kennedy? Yes. I mean, he's he's clearly like, I because mean, I, if I recall correctly, in the previous segment, he just fessed up to everything, you know, all the crimes, right? He he did. He can he confessed to all of them, and I'll add uh, that in the first segment and now in this segment. I think it's a DEA or one of the investigating officers said that there's no possibility in his mind for there being a second shooter because Berkowitz recalled uh, the details of each of each incident with 100% accuracy. Crystal, you're getting hung up on the facts. Oh, I'm sorry. You're, you're here ignoring all this other jazz. Oh, and sorry. Before I shoot the, 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 the last couple of bits of bullshit. Yeah. Uh, one thing I liked about the reenactment of them doing the depositions was like when it started out did, for the first deposition, did you notice that like the very elderly, like, you know, DA or police person like that, you can hear him saying how many members of this devilish cult, uh, you know, you hear that bit of dialogue in between the Robert Stack narration and the way he's saying it, like, you know, it feels like they brought in some sort of, southern preacher to like <laughs> do the deposition because like the way he says devilish cult like is just you know just filled mouth filled with venom um but we have a couple more disparate events that that get thrown in here apparently a day after berkowitz was arrested two young boys led the police to a grave where there were three german shepherds buried and uh so another police official uh thought that like there's a lot of animal sacrifices going on in this park i kind of feel like maybe one of these boys had a father who was like you know training dogs for fighting but yeah that that could have been it um another one could be it's queens uh, new york not everybody has a backyard to bury their poor dead dog in when it passes. So maybe the local park becomes the pet cemetery. Oh, good point. Um, and then uh, ter- Mr. Terry was contacted by a 15-year-old who uh, alleged to have knowledge about the satanic activity going on in the park. Mm-hmm. So he goes to meet this underage kid in the park. Um <laughs> 
and and he's shown where the cult, the various places the cult would meet, including a, a building where there was some quote unquote very sophisticated satanic uh, graffiti, which mm-hmm. was you know, basically just a black spray painted pentagram. I mean, to me, like seeing that and thinking that that indicated like a satanic presence is kind of like going into a uh, a restroom seeing a, a swastika carved onto the the door and mm-hmm. assuming you know the 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 Aryan nation was really active yeah, yeah. in the of your local grocery store i mean it, it's just something that you're going to invariably see um so you know the last layer of bullshit on this is uh, comes from unsolved mysteries itself where they say that while they're filming in the park they're approached by two people who basically give Unsolved Mysteries an excuse to, to recreate, like reenact uh, some sa- sort of satanic ceremony um, to, where these two young people stumble across like a whole, you know, coven of men in black and white ro- alternating robes with a very skir- scared German shepherd. They're like lifting candles up, a- up and down in the air. Um, you know, it's just, is almost certainly just lies, lies and more lies. Um, so many lies, so yeah, many lies se- in this segment. The, the segment ends with Stack uh, filming at Police Division Six, and he ominously uh, says that if Terry cor- is correct, that this satanic group is still alive, still uh- meeting. Yeah, yeah. And so the the crimes still recruiting new members. So uh, sorry to stomp on your spooky ending. That <laughs> no, was alright. But uh, so just to backtrack a little bit, the Son of Sam crimes happened between 1976 and 1977. The show that we're discussing tonight was released in 1987. Um, so there was a ten year gap. So when they're saying this is still continuing, they're talking about a full decade. So, um, to throw another layer on this, and this, and I don't know that this is allowed because it wasn't a part of an update or anything in the episode, but I... So, I, I mentioned <laughs> Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan in the previous segment. I think you're good. Um, I, di- <laughs> I did a little research, and, and more than Robbie's usual uh, 44 seconds of looking on Google, um, because this was a case I was actually pretty interested in and it turns out sometime in the the 90s and then again in the early 2000s um they some journalist or otherwise pers- person who's interested in true crime uh st- investigates this satanic cult angle again and it seems to be one of these things that just doesn't die with this story so i'm gonna give my my hot take which i think is probably the uh, conventional opinion of what happened, okay. which was, uh, of course, Berkowitz did it. There wasn't a sec- There weren't the the whole thrust of both of these segments is to introduce and say there was more than one shooter, and that and that there was and the inference is that there was some kind of mandate from this alleged satanic cult to go and randomly shoot people. Uh, so here, 
here's what I think happened. I think Berkowitz is a very mentally unstable uh, man or was. Um, I think he was highly suggest suggestible. Um, we started last week by saying that he received orders from his neighbor's barking dog to go and, and randomly shoot these people. Um, I think this accounts for, too, when the the cops come back and start interviewing him if he knew the Carr brothers. And he says yes, which is true. They were neighbors. Um, and then they, you know, ask him if he was part of X, Y, and Z. And he says yes. I think it's because he is so he is so receptive to suggestion okay um so i think that's the more plausible explanation now <laughs> is there a satanic cult operate that was operating out of queens new york possibly Did yeah they give, well, but mean, what would you know, be the point of them giving orders for to put a, a gun which doesn't fit anything else that they've described this cult as allegedly doing to give Berkowitz a gun and they go shoot random people. I, I, there's, there's, they're asking us to make a lot of inferences here without quite spelling it out. And so that's why I say they're just throwing a lot of sentences out <laughs> and, at, and letting the viewer draw conclusions. I think it's really convenient that they're um, sort of roping into dead men who can't defend themselves into the son of sam story right so, i mean this is just hot hot garbage would you say this is the 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 biggest garbage that that we've had so far on the on this show yes Pro wow <laughs> man uh, well uh you know like my my opinion on this is I mean, clearly satanic panic was such that, like, according to the show, we already have satanic groups operating in, like, the Bay Area, New York City, and Minot, North Dakota. Um, I have a feeling that by the time we're done with this podcast and we've listened to every segment, there will have been satanic uh, cult uh, groups literally in every community in America. Um, which would just be absolutely ridiculous. Um, um, well, there could be, but they're probably not sacrificing animals and killing people and shit. Well, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Satanists nowadays are, are mostly, like you said, uh, with the the one where we had the uh, the, the the larping and my yeah, yeah. and my horrifying confession. Um, we. You mentioned like most Satanists nowadays are really, if anything, they're just they're kind of secular humanists or just trolling. Uh, yeah, or they're just trolling of, the mainstream like Christian establishment. You know, yeah, like they raise yeah. money to give. Uh, this might be wrong, but you know, they raise money to give it to like uh, Planned Parenthood and stuff. You know, <laughs> like they're not... well, yeah, precisely, precisely. Um, yeah, so. You know, but honestly, I have to say, like, my feelings about this segment is, like, it's bullshit, but the bullshit simultaneously makes it and breaks it. Like, I mean, I, I was outraged just because I don't like the, you know, that they're just shoving lies down our throat. But the lies made it entertaining. So it gets three stars. Uh, it can't get any more because of the bullshit. But it can't get any less because of the bullshit. 
Um, I'm going to give the reenactment itself because the second... Oh, we were going to do a rating for both parts one and two, so... Oh, man. So is that your cumulative rating? Uh, Yeah, I guess it is. Okay, I'm going to give this reenactment because it was confusing, because (laughs) it was hard to follow, because it wasn't scary or entertaining or anything, really. I'm giving it two disciples out of hell. That's how many (laughs) I'm giving it. You know, that sounds like the exact same reasoning you gave me for why you're not, like, super hot on Twin Peaks. Um. <laughs> uh, well, that's... Uh, I, th- I think I like Twin Peaks a bit more than I like uh, liked this, right, right. these two segments. So, I, I guess now we're moving on to, like, how many lawsuit um defendants (laughs) lawsuit defendants from hell yeah uh of which there will be 12 12 12 defendants from hell you know what else has 12 things jesus had 12 apostles you know how you know what else is 12 months in the year 12 12 tribes of israel you know what else is you know what else is uh 12 nope I don't have anything else. <laughs> the, the rightfully guided imams of Shia Islam? Oh, yeah. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. Coincidence? I think not. No. So tell us about okay, this. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so leading into our final story of the night, um, it's a missing case. Um, the man who is speaking to us, his name is Robert Heron. On uh, July 6th, I think it was, was 1986 or 1987. This seemed to be a very recent story when they recorded it. So it was like an ongoing investigation. Um, Robert Heron's wife was kidnapped. Um, and it was all linked back to his business somehow. Uh, we opened with uh, Robert has a press conference. He's asking whoever kidnapped his wife to return her. Um, the kidnapper had left a note to give money to 12 other people which are named in the note. Presumably, the kidnapper is doing this altruistically and not wanting the money for himself. Uh, so... <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, you know how you do. Yeah. Um, so one of the he's a kindred soul with Gretchen from the previous segment. Yes. They're altruistic people. Um. So so the reenactment that we get upon where after the press conference is Robert comes home to find he comes from home from work and he finds his wife's not there. Uh, not too much evidence of foul play. House is in pretty much good order um but after a couple hours he calls the cops because uh he hadn't heard from his wife remember guys this is pre-cell phone so uh you know people had to be places at times so other people wouldn't worry and when his wife hadn't returned home he called the cops after he had called the cops though a note is this note is discovered folded up near the front door which names the 12 people that he has to pay the ransom money to if he wants his wife back as well as explicit instructions not to call the cops so unfortunately he had already contacted law enforcement or fortunately he had already contacted law enforcement 
so the story with Heron is that he was the president of School Pictures, which is uh, one of those companies that goes to picture day at school and takes takes uh, pictures of kids and then sells it back to the parents. Um, so he uh, became wealthy among other businesses by franchising out this operation. Uh, at some point, he had sued 12 of the franchisees for falling out of compliance with something. They don't really get into the details of this. Uh, and, it, and the people that he had sued were the same 12 uh, folks that were named in the note. Um, the, because the lawsuits were of public record, anyone who wanted to know would have been able to access the names of, uh, through the county court records. Um, all 12 people were contacted. Some responded saying they didn't want anything from them. Uh, most people didn't respond. The demands in the note were very vague. I don't believe they left a, a amount that they wanted the 12 people um, to be paid in. Well, like, they... I, yeah, I, I, th- I believe you're correct. He was just like, you owe these people and... and it was actually on uh, Robert to sort of track down how much he was supposed to right. send. So what, so what I think they ended up doing is they split up a million dollars among 12 checks based on how much the the franchise, franchisees had been sued for. Um, so, but in the meantime, they get a letter from Annie, the wife that had been kidnapped, she sends a letter home asking Heron to comply with the kidnapper's demands. It was in her handwriting. It was unmistakable. It was totally from her. Um, they tried to fingerprint the envelope, however, and came up empty-handed. Uh, so Heron tries to pay back the 12, tra- 12 franchisees. One million in total is sent out, and all the checks have been returned. So no one cashed the check. No one didn't hear from Annie um, here and it sounds like he really did his best along with the press conference to try and get his wife back. Um, So at the time that this aired, four months had passed since Annie had been kidnapped. Um, They're now interviewing her son. Um, There's been no word from mother and they would like to have mother back. Uh, So that's, it's a quick story, but that's what we get. It, 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 you know, the, the situation itself is kind of unsettling. Like you're, you know, someone you care about's kidnapped and the kidnapper's not being entirely clear about what you're supposed to do to get the person back. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and, you know, I mean, either it's so cryptic or, you know, we're just lazy. Like, I mean, the kidnapper's making the victim, um, or rather, the victim's family do most of the legwork. Uh, like he had to like go and you know dig up the files, find out how much he he owed these people. Um, and that, that that to me was really, I mean, that was really the thing that stood out most in the segment was just the the unusualness of the the ransom demand. Uh, I, I mean, I yeah, and that and that that's that's really it because, like you say, this segment goes by really quick. Um, so we get an update and the update was that a lawyer who had been one of the franchisees that was sued. Uh, <gasps> I'm shocked. Uh, who <laughs> would have known that it would have been one of the people who had been sued? 
Yeah, go figure, right? Um, yeah. So the lawyer had been... A, so uh, I didn't catch his... Wait, I did catch his name. The lawyer's name is Newton Wynn. Yeah. Um, he he was arrested. Uh, he had been named in the letter. He didn't cash the check, though. So go Yeah, figure. you know, I, I guess, obviously, he was thinking, you know, if I make the um, victim mail out to all the people who are part of the lawsuit, the FBI won't be able to figure out it's me. Um, but you know, the thing is, is like when, yeah, you give, you've given the FBI 11 more suspects, but you've also like eliminated the rest of the entire country as potential (laughs) suspects. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine that if you hadn't named the 12 names, it probably would have, there would have been a list generated where here in his ass, well, could you, do you have anybody who's an enemy? Do you have anybody that owes you money or that you owe money to? Um, so, so Newt, Newton, um, has hands off the letter that Annie had written and it was mailed by a woman in Atlanta, uh, who, who caught, caught a glance at the, uh, uh, yeah, the address. And so she was, she was, uh, positive that had been the letter that she had mailed to Robert Heron. Um, so Newton is tried and convicted, uh, sentenced to 19 years, uh, for, I don't think he gets charged with kidnapping, but he gets charged with like extortion and some other things. Yeah. Um, the especially chilling part of this update is that Annie Heron was never found. Right. And they don't go into that. Like, Uh -uh. did they just, were they weren't, they weren't able to extract that information out of the guy? I guess, so I guess not, but you want the second part of the chilling is that Newton Wynn has, has been released as of now. So whenever the producers <laughs> last updated the show. So you can kidnap a woman, demand a ransom, pers- possibly, presumably kill her. Yeah. And, you know, be arrested and released uh, uh, between the time this segment first aired and when this update was added on. Meanwhile, that guy who stole the Polish sausage was, you know, looking at potential life imprisonment. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I keep going back. To I that, know because but... it's so it's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous yeah. that the guy. Well, he didn't. It's he didn't get life in prison for stealing Polish sausage. Yeah, no, I I know he, he got it for allegedly, allegedly stealing yeah three hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, yeah, no, so Newton, I mean, I assume the producers had updated the show before they started uploading it to Amazon and whatnot, so, uh, right. you know, uh, Newton Wynn has since been released, could have been any time between 1997 and now, so I really don't yeah. know, yeah. uh, he could be dead, but, um, before we give our stack rating, I did a little research on this one as well, because we had two very interesting cases, to discuss this week and I was interested if if they had ever managed to get out of Newton when what happened to Annie and so um, I was reading about her there's a website called the Charlie Project and they uh, document cases of missing persons and updates to that or if anybody has information it's sort of like a central hub for these types of things and Annie was she was never recovered and they 
suspect i mean the running theory is her her body's buried somewhere in georgia but there's no, there's nothing it's been 30 years and there's nothing i give this segment one stack um because not only is it like exceedingly brief with very little in the way of a reenactment yes but yeah, we don't get much of a reenactment at all it's i mean not only is it bleak but it they don't give us much information i mean you know obviously they don't know the whereabouts of her mm-hmm. um but the, they don't even like the update really doesn't even follow up with to really give us a sense of what exactly is going on. I mean, the only thing this segment had going for it was just the, the novel aspect that like, you know, they were sent like the 12 names. Um, actually I'll get, I'll give it one and a half stacks. Oh man. This is such a bummer too. Uh, yeah. Like did on the, uh, the general Wayne in. <laughs> Yeah, they had to. They had to, you know, just make sure everybody was sufficiently depressed at the end of the episode. So, uh, you know, we we don't end with the son son of Sam bullshittery. We get this last one tossed in. Uh, yeah, I don't have much to say about it. Just two stacks. If you enjoy our podcast, have enjoyed our podcast. Um, are still on the fence or whatever. Uh, please follow us on Twitter. Uh, give us reviews on iTunes, Google play, wherever you can give reviews to us. Even if our program is not on there, just, you know, just review us. Uh, preferably just, just I- you could review us like on a post-it at work and like put it on the work fridge too. I mean, we'll take what we can get. Oh my God, Crystal. That's brilliant. <laughs> It's called it's called viral <laughs> marketing. That's that's what our that's what our our fans should do. Just leave yes. creepy post-its around with the name of our podcast. You're right. They should do it. Um, Precisely. On Twitter, though, we're at at reenacted pod. Uh, you can send us an email. That's reenactedpod at gmail And Robbie, if you want to do the honors, for every mystery, there is someone somewhere who knows the truth. Perhaps that someone is watching. Perhaps it is you.